Well, good evening. I'm glad you guys are here. Just make your way in, take your time, and come on in and have a seat. We're going to get started on our study of Acts. Let me say a prayer for us, and we'll jump right in. Lord, thank you for this evening, and thank you for everyone who comes to just pour into your word, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it shapes us, and I pray that tonight, just week in and week out, as we continue to be in your word, that you will mold us into the men and women that you desire us to be. Father, thank you for all that you give us, and we lift up all the concerns in this group, knowing that you will meet us at our point of need. And Father, I pray that you'd give us the faith to trust you in every circumstance. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as you can tell, there's kind of an orchestra pit, but we will not have a performance tonight. This is Crossing School is doing their uh, performance, doing a play in here, and they have, I'm really pleased to see this, that is a big, they have enough students who play music to actually have their own little orchestra, which is cool. So there wasn't any read the reason to take it down, but I didn't want you to get your hopes up and think, hey, we're going to do a musical tonight. You do not want to hear me being part of any musical whatsoever. Hey, you guys know about uh, questions. Text your questions in during class. We'll answer as many as we can. We are just working our way through the book of Acts. It's a story of the early church, and it takes so many interesting twists and turns. So in this first little section, we've seen the beginning of the church and some of the growing pains and some persecution. Starting in our next lesson next week, we'll move into the next phase of the church. And we'll move on through chapters 10 through 15. And then we'll go into the third phase, that explosive missionary journeys of Paul and have a lot of pictures of the places that Paul was. And so we're just going to make our way through the book of Acts and draw some lessons out of that. Probably recall, as our story paused in our, our last lesson, we had Stephen, one of the early disciples. He was a Hellenistic Christian, meaning that he was Greek-speaking, he, uh, he hadn't lived in Israel, Judea, he came from somewhere else, and he was a Hellenistic Jew, Greek-speaking, Greek-living kind of Jew who became a Christian. And there was a schism, a little bit of a, a threat in the early church that, hey, wait a minute, the Jewish Christian widows were uh, being favored over the Greek Christian widows. So you kind of had some ethnic differences there. Well, they picked seven men, all of them Greek, Hellenistic Christians, and said, you take care of the widows. And Stephen was one of them. If you remember, he begins to do miracles, he begins to preach, and the, the ruling powers of the Jews, the Sanhedrin, uh, pulled him up, and then they were so angry, they literally rushed out and stoned him to death. They violated their own law, and they violated Roman law. They were just that angry. Well, the death of Stephen is a huge event. I mean, stop and think about it. It'd be like, I mean, God forbid, but that the authorities came and grabbed somebody out of crossings and put them to death because they were preaching Christianity. And it would be just like unbelievable. And we need to get our heads into how, how threatening that was for everyone. And so when Stephen was killed, it says this young man, Saul, was there giving approval to his death. The way the book of Acts is done is it's, it's really great literature, as well as just simply being true and the inspired word of God. It's also well done. You see all these storylines interwoven. And so we're introduced to this young man, Saul. He's probably about 30 years old. No one knows for sure, but that seems likely. He's a student of the premier rabbi of the age, Rabbi Gamaliel. 
And so he is a, one of the best and the brightest. Think of it like today, he is in the doctoral program at Harvard or something. I mean, that might be kind of equivalent to today of the kind of status of this young man. But he's there saying, absolutely, this guy Stephen is saying things that just are not right, and he needs to be killed for it. And on that day, as chapter 8 moves on, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all of the Christians, except the apostles, were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. They all left Jerusalem. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. First, sometimes I forget to mention these things, but Saul is a, a Hebrew name. If you remember the first king of the Jews back at about well, call it 1000 BC, just to round things off, was King Saul. So it was sort of like George Washington, you know, being named George, you know, and because of this great founder, father of our country. Well, King Saul was the first king of the Jews, and so he's named after Saul. So it's just a good Jewish name. He's going to be known later in the book of Acts, and, and I sometimes am guilty of just switching Saul and Paul. Paul is short for a Latin name, uh, a Roman name, Paulus. So the Apostle Paul, or Saul as he's known here, is a Jewish man, but he's also a Roman citizen, so he has a Roman name. And since he spent most of his time not in Jerusalem, he's out in the Roman and Greek world uh, evangelizing, it's very advantageous to use your Roman name because what that said was, oh, you're a Roman citizen. I mean, that made a difference. And so we talk about the Apostle Paul. That's this young man, Saul. Interesting, a couple interesting things about this is that uh, notice that going from house to house, I mean, Saul is intense. This guy's type A, overachiever. Going from house to house, basically questioning Christians and getting them to say Jesus is the Son of God. That's blasphemy. You're going to jail, and if the Romans will let us, we're going to kill you. And so he's literally dragging them off. Interesting notice, men and women. There's no distinction here amongst the Christians uh, in that men and women both say, this is my faith. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, and drag them off to prison. The other thing is, think of the courage that would take. Coming into your house, you've got your kids, and they say, well, are you a follower of Jesus? And if you say yes, they're going to drag you off, and your kids are going to go off to foster care. I mean, I want you to get the human impact of this. We read these words, but if this happened today, we'd go, whoa, cataclysmic event. Well, it was cataclysmic event. I mean, the faith is amazing, but it was a huge event in the life of the church. It was a massive setback. It's like, oh, no. We've got this new faith, but the Jews are literally, they killed Stephen. They put my next door neighbor in prison. If they show up at my house and I confess, yes, Jesus is the Christ, they're going to put me in prison. That's what's happening in the early church. So they pack up and they take off. They scatter. It looks like in the short run, the Jewish leaders go, well, I think we took care of that little problem, didn't we? You know, they all ran them all out of town and everything is good. And I want you to see there are bookends on this lesson. This lesson starts in chapter 8 with probably, at the time, they thought this is the worst thing that could have happened. I guess Christianity's going to die. And I want you to watch when we end this lesson, almost at the end of chapter 9. There's a section there. I want you to see what happens in between. 
So, the church is scattered in this really awful event, but watch how God uses this setback in ways that no one could have figured out. Well, our next character, young man named Philip. Philip is also one of those seven deacons that we met last time. He was a Jew, but he wasn't a, a Hebrew Jew. He grew up somewhere other than Israel. So he spoke Greek, he had Greek customs, not so much Jewish customs, but he was a Jew. He comes, he's converted to Christianity, and so he becomes one of the seven deacons. And so he leaves Jerusalem as well, but watch what he begins to do. It says, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. You could not have planned this any better. I mean, in the sense that this terrible thing happened in Jerusalem, but as they start scattering, all of a sudden, you've got 20,000 missionaries, just like that. So they all began to preach wherever they went. Philip went to a city in Samaria. I'll show you a map in a second, but you probably know that in those days, Jerusalem and Israel, and then Samaria was that country just to the north. They hated Samaritans. Jews hated the Samaritans. They used to be Jewish, but back in history, they'd intermarried and they weren't very faithful. They hated them maybe more than the non-Jews because they at least said they were followers of God, and they said, no, you're not. You know, you're, you're even worse than an unbeliever because you do it wrong. So they, they hated the Samaritans. And so Philip went to a city in Samaria, and he began to proclaim Christ. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Two thoughts here. One, I want you to notice that Philip doesn't think twice about breaking the taboo. All those Hebrew Jews that became Christians still had that kind of ingrained, we don't like Samaritans thing. If you grew up somewhere else, you came, it's like, yeah, I'm a Jew, but I didn't really grow up with that hatred of the Samaritans next door. So he kind of breaks this taboo and doesn't even think about it. Some of the Jewish Christians were like, they had to kind of overcome that. And you'll see in our next lesson, it's not easy for them to overcome it. Philip, he's like, I didn't grow up around here, so I never played football against those guys. I have no grudge with these guys. So I'll just go preach to him, and he does. So he kind of breaks that taboo and just takes it to Samaria, just like somebody else we know, Jesus. Remember when Jesus met the Samaritan woman at the well, you know, the one that had so many husbands, and he has this interaction? She said, well, you Jews think you can only worship in Jerusalem, but we worship here at Mount Gerizim, which, by the way, is probably where Philip went, is that same place. And Jesus said, that's true, you guys worship wrong, but the day is coming when we will all worship in spirit and in truth. This is that day. This is fulfilling what Jesus said. Here comes Philip to bring the good news about the Messiah to the Samaritans. Second thing is, if you've noticed, there's a pattern and this is important because I think that we, in our own way, use the same pattern. Um, not necessarily because we do healings and casting out demons, etc. But the idea of the signs, the miraculous uh, signs that they were doing, were simply to get attention for the message. Look what it says. It says, when they saw the miraculous signs, they paid close attention to what he said. You've seen that pattern in Acts. Why did they do the miracles? They do the miracles so that people go, okay, wait, 
I got to listen to what this guy's saying because there's something about this God, right? He's talking about God and look what he's doing. So I'm going to pay attention to what he says. That's important to us because sometimes we forget that too. Sometimes we think that the point of the gospel is the good deeds or in this case, the miracles. Sometimes we'll say, I wonder why Jesus didn't heal more people. And boy, he could have cured world hunger and he could have done this and he could have done that. And the reason is the, the scripture doesn't make any apology for this. The gospel is not about just doing good deeds and ending world hunger and that sort of thing. That's not the gospel. The signs and the things that we do get people to listen to the gospel. It's not the miracle that made people have faith. It's not the miracle that made people saved. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the same is true for us. We need to be careful. Of course, we're going to do good deeds. We are going to be out there feeding people that are hungry and healing people, but we don't make the mistake of thinking that's what the gospel is. No, the gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ that reconciles us to God. All the other things that we do are simply, that's who we are. So it's easy for us to sometimes fall into what's called a social gospel or something, and we go, okay, Jesus Christ is all about healing people, or he's all about feeding people. No, he's actually all about reconciling us with God, and everything else is going to flow from that. And you see that in Acts. You're going to see that pattern over and over. The miracles are not the message. The miracles simply enable the message. And that's an important uh, idea. The other important thing you see out of this, and this is the first time you see it, is... Uh, in uh, the book of Acts is the Messiah isn't just the Messiah of Jews. Because up until this time, pretty much everybody that's been converted in Jerusalem is a Jew. Now, they may be a Hellenistic Jew, meaning they grew up in a, a different town. They didn't grow up in Jerusalem. They grew up in another town. They spoke Greek. But they still went to the synagogue, and they still read their Old Testament, and they still believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the first time that you see the gospel and the Messiah being proclaimed to people that aren't considered Jewish. They're considered Samaritans. And so he's really, this is a breaking out of the gospel. It's an expanding of the gospel. And some people are going to have a hard time accepting that, as we'll see as we go on. But one of the powerful ideas here is that the Messiah is for everybody, not just for the Jews. Particularly next week, you're going to see that really come to a head and start to cause some trouble in the church as people really start to understand how radical Jesus really was and how broad his message really was. Well, Philip is going to go on and have an interesting little encounter with an Ethiopian here in just a minute, and I think you'll, you'll like seeing that. Uh, let me show you first, though. This is kind of a, a map of his ministry. He's in Jerusalem, and he goes north when they're all scattered up to the area of Samaria. And then he spends some time there. He's later going to come back, and he's going to go down to Gaza, which, by the way, interestingly, is still a city today. He's going to go down to Gaza, and there he's going to meet this Ethiopian eunuch. And I want to tell you about that story in a second because it's got an interesting twist to it. But while he's here in Samaria, something interesting happens that I know you're going to have questions about because every week we get questions about this. And so... We're probably going to talk about this every week because you're going to see the Holy Spirit doing miraculous things almost every lesson for a while. And so we're going to wrestle this to the ground, some of the questions about the Holy Spirit. But watch what happens. Philip goes to Samaria, preaches the good news, does some miracles. They all say, hey, I want to hear what you have to say. He says, I need to tell you about Jesus Christ. Are you willing to 
follow him? They say, absolutely. They're all joyous as they can be. The disciples in Jerusalem get news. They hear, wait a minute. Some of these crazy Hellenistic Christians are up there preaching the gospel to people that aren't even Jewish. And they all believe. And they say, you've got to be kidding me. We better send Peter and John up there to check this out. What is going on with this deal? You know, is this okay? We're not sure this is all right. And so that's what they do. And that's the next story. So let's look at this. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. Peter and John go because if you've noticed right now, they are the most influential the leaders even of the apostles. Remember Peter and John are the first ones arrested? Peter and John are together in the temple when they heal the crippled man that's like, whoa, and that really gets the attention of the rulers and they beat them and let them go. Peter and John carry a lot of apostolic authority at this moment. So they send the two top guys, Peter and John, the CEO, chief operating officer for the church. So they send them up there and said, when they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So let's talk about this for a minute, because the, the Scripture, we've talked to this point that everyone has the Holy Spirit. The Scripture teaches that pretty clearly that everyone has the Holy Spirit. In fact, I quoted to you last time uh, Ephesians 1.13, saying, when you believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He's a seal that guarantees your future inheritance. Uh, Romans 5.5 is a pretty little passage, by the way. It says, Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So it's a principle throughout all of Scripture that as we come to trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit is God's seal. It is God marks us, so to speak, with the Holy Spirit. But here's the problem. It appears that some Christians manifested what we call charismatic gifts, or miraculous gifts, or sign gifts, you'll hear them called that. Everyone has gifts of the Holy Spirit, that's what we've talked about, but not all Christians in Acts appear to have the gift of healing a paralyzed person, or speaking in other languages like they did in Acts uh, chapter 2, or uh, casting out evil spirits. Later you'll see the gift of prophetic utterances or prophecy. In other words, things that appear to be obviously miraculous. You know, you just bent the laws of nature here. You don't see all Christians having that, but you do see some. And we talked about how that seems to be what God uses for his purposes. Not all Christians get that particular gift, just like not all Christians get the gift of teaching or hospitality or any of the other gifts that the Spirit endows us with. So you see that, but there are some Christians who think that the Holy Spirit and the water baptism are two different things. And I just want to be honest with you and tell you, this is one of the passages that makes certain Christians think that. Because here you have believers in Samaria who've been baptized. They're followers of Christ. But it's not until they lay their hands on them, Peter and John, that they're filled with what's implied as miraculous gifts of the Spirit. Does that make sense? 
So it begins to puzzle us a little bit because you're going to see the Ethiopian eunuch in a minute who's going to get baptized and who's not going to have this happen to him. You're going to see the Apostle Paul before we leave here tonight. He's also going to get converted, and you're not going to see this happen to him, although he will later do miraculous things as God needs him to do miraculous things. So this idea of the Holy Spirit is something I just want to talk about. I'm talking for a second because I suspect you'll have some questions about this. But I want to give you kind of three categories of the way Christians see these miraculous gifts. And this is a, one reason you can understand how Christians might think differently about this. Now, I'll give you my view in a second because I like to look at the totality of the book. And I'll tell you what I think is actually happening here. But big picture, there's a whole group of uh, Christians who are called cessationists, meaning the miraculous gifts have ceased. Not that they didn't happen, they just don't happen today because they're not necessary. And so there are Christians who are convinced for various reasons in the scriptures that there aren't miraculous gifts today. There are Christians, I'm going to go to the other side and then I'll come to the middle, and you can pick your flavor. On the other side are Christians who say they're called continuationists, meaning the miraculous gifts continue into today. Maybe not everybody, because not everybody apparently had miraculous gifts in those days, but some of the traditions, the charismatic traditions, some of the Pentecostal traditions, say that those miraculous gifts happen today, and some of them even say, all of you should be doing miraculous gifts. You should at least be speaking in tongues, maybe doing some healing, I'm not sure. But basically, you've got that continuing, you know, that continuationist view. Then in the middle of that, and I don't mean to position it as a middle, but you also have Christians who believe that miraculous gifts may very much still be around today, that they maybe haven't ceased, but they're probably at God's command, not our command, like the book of Acts indicates. And so it is possible that miraculous gifts of the Spirit could be done today, but it is not a normal practice. It does not appear that God needs all of us to be doing those things today to fulfill his purpose. Does that make sense? So those are kind of the three basic views of the Holy Spirit. Those who are in the more uh, charismatic camp, the continuationist, would point to this and say, you know what, maybe the Holy Spirit should be coming upon all of us like it is on them, and that we should all, as a matter of conversion, be doing that. Again, I want to point out, you do not see that as normative in the book of Acts. So to me, it's problematic to argue that all Christians should be doing this because even in Acts, all Christians aren't doing that. But it also makes me a little bit uh, suspicious of the idea that gifts have ceased. And the reason that I say that is they appear to have always been under God's control to serve God's purposes. It may be that God isn't using them right now, but I wouldn't want to say that God could not use them now. Does that make sense? So, you can kind of figure out where, where I see the book of Acts coming down on it, but I do want you to understand that well-intentioned Christians read the scriptures a little differently. This is one reason why they sometimes read it a little differently. Okay? But this is a fascinating story. I'll tell you why I think this is here, is if you think about it, you're, and there's going to be one other case next week where you're going to see miraculous gifts come in a weird way. The Holy Spirit do something really different that he doesn't do everywhere in Acts. This is a milestone 
I mean, first of all, you see miraculous gifts come on the apostles, remember, on the day of Pentecost, and they get up and they speak in different languages, and everybody goes, we need to listen to what these guys are saying because something really different is happening. They preach the gospel, 3,000 people become Christians, and there's the first church. That's interesting that that happened. And then they begin to do things, uh, miraculous signs, as they begin to spread the word. But they're still preaching to Jews. This is the first time you see them preaching to non-Jews. And here's the big question in Christian's mind is, wait a minute, can Samaritans actually become Christians? I mean, I know they probably say they are, but really, honestly, did Jesus really intend that these guys could follow him too? When Peter and John go up there and see these believers, lay their hands on them, and God gives them miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit, that answers that question, doesn't it? God answered that question. He said, let me answer that for you. Yes, they get the Holy Spirit too. And I think, this is my view, uh, is that that's why you see them going out of their way to put this in. Because you don't have to put this in. You've got Philip in Samaria. Right after this in the scripture, you're going to see Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Why do you take time to put this little story in the middle? I think because it's validating through the power of the Holy Spirit, these miraculous gifts that, hey, they too can be saved. Does that make sense? That's a good explanation to me. Not everyone shares that view, but, uh, but I think that that makes a lot of sense in terms of why this is here. Next time, when you see something happen with even worse people than the Samaritans, you'll see something really similar happen, and then you won't see this after that. You begin to see it, I think, in certain milestones. Okay? After that, in uh, Samaria, I know this is tiny print. Oh, it's not so tiny up there, but it's tiny on my screen. Uh, I'll tell you this story. So, Philip leaves there. Angel of the Lord said to Philip, I want you to go south on the desert road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he leaves Samaria, goes all the way down to Gaza. In what's today the Gaza Strip, that city Gaza today has been around for a long time. So he's going to that same city. So he's going down to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, who was the queen of the Ethiopians. Let me tell you who this is first, and we'll keep going. Ethiopia, think of it as just down below Egypt. So on the Nile River, you've got Egypt at the top, and then below that is the country of, in those days, Ethiopia, similar where it is today. So you have Ethiopia. Ethiopia at that time had a queen, and this eunuch, so you know what a eunuch is, this eunuch was a high government official. That was not uncommon, and it actually made sense in a perverted sort of way. Basically, if you got somebody in charge of your treasury, you need to be worried that they are going to, you know, put their hand in the till, right? Or that they are in some way going to be compromised, and somebody else is going to get to them, and they're going to betray you in some way. Eunuchs, for obvious reasons, were considered more trustworthy because they were not, let's just say, how do you say this politely, subject to the feminine wiles. In other words, they could not be uh, tempted or corrupted in that way. Now, they weren't all honest people, but this is not uncommon to see eunuchs in positions of high government authority. They were considered to be more trusted. Uh, and so that's who this was. This guy's probably the treasurer or head of the IRS or something, you know, for Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. He's obviously, though, 
he can't be Jewish, but he can be someone who believes in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and goes up to Jerusalem to try to participate as much as he can in the life of Judaism. A eunuch, by the law of Moses, could not actually be a Jew. You could not actually be a full convert called a proselyte to Judaism because they were eunuchs. You could be a believer, a God-fearing person who believed it. You can't go into the temple, area, certain temple areas, but you, he obviously was a believer, but he could never be fully accepted. He could never be fully Jewish. That's who this is. So Philip sees this eunuch. The man had gone to Jerusalem to worship as much as he was allowed, and he was on his way home. So he's on the road through Gaza, going south to Egypt, back down to Ethiopia. So he was going on his way home, sitting in his chariot. He's reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot, get near. He ran up to it, and he said, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch said, I need somebody to explain it to me. So he said, come on up and sit down. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. This is in Isaiah chapter 53. It's a prophecy about the Messiah. He was led like a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. And the eunuch said, hey, is Isaiah talking about himself or somebody else? And then Philip began with that very passage to tell him about the good news and how all the prophecies of Jesus had come true. Well, they were traveling along the road, and they came to some water, and the eunuch said, hey, there's water. Why in the world can I not be baptized right now? And so he gave orders to stop the chariot, and then they got and went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel until he reached Caesarea. You won't see Philip again until chapter 21 of Acts, and then you're going to hear about his kids but he's going to go live in Caesarea for the next indefinite period of time. His story is kind of over in the book of Acts. He came on the scene as a deacon. He went to Samaria and did something pretty bold, preached the gospel to people that I'm not sure we're allowed to tell them about Jesus. And then he meets this Ethiopian. Ethiopian's interesting because, A, he's not a white guy, and, B, he's not even remotely Jewish, right? not even slightly, and in fact, he's not only not Jewish, he can never become a Jew because he's a eunuch. Even somebody else who is an Ethiopian could, could become circumcised and go through some rituals and they could literally become Jewish. This guy has no hope. So you notice the Samaritans are one layer removed. This Ethiopian is another layer removed from uh, being acceptable to the gospel. So Philip is used by God and that's all, all you know. I'm sure he continued to preach in Caesarea, but this is all you know, is he was used by God to go extend the gospel to some people they weren't sure could hear the gospel. Really interesting that uh, the Ethiopian eunuch is reading this passage because Isaiah was actually a very popular book amongst people like this because of this passage. He was reading in 53. This is what he would read when he got to chapter 56. This is a prophecy that God is making about the time of Jesus. They don't know this, but the time that's coming. Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, the Lord will exclude me from his people. What he's saying is, if you're not Jewish, don't despair. 
that you can't be a chosen person. And let not any eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs. I mean, not much worse than being a eunuch to the Jews. You just, you just weren't kosher. So to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. In other words, obey what I've told them. To them I will give within my temple. Ooh, you can go in the temple and its walls, a memorial and a name that's even better than children. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. What an unbelievably interesting prophecy. And that's why he was reading in the book of Isaiah, is there's hope there. So there's hope in the Old Testament, even for those who were considered way outside of being Jews. And God uses Philip to bring that hope to fruition. That's a powerful message for today as well, because we kind of have outcasts. You know, we have people that we think, well, they might technically be able to become a Christian, but it isn't going to happen, right? You probably know people, Crazy Uncle Joe. I don't know who's the crazy uncle in your family, but we've all got one, and you think, or the really uh, black sheep of the family, and that our statement for that is like so far gone that they'll never come back. I want you to just think about that a little differently, because in those days, I want you to understand, if you were a Jewish Christian in Jerusalem, even if you're Peter and John, you're like, I don't think the Samaritans have any chance whatsoever. And then they hear that, oh, Philip preached to them and they believe. You're kidding me. They believe? They've never even been in Sunday school. I mean, these are heathens, right? Kind of like me. It's like, how did you believe that? You know, you never even grew up in church. Well, they did. Then he goes to an Ethiopian eunuch, somebody who's like, well, there is no way because they can never become a Jew, don't think they can ever become a Christian. And yet here this happens. And so the same is true for us. Don't ever give up on people and don't ever sell the power of the gospel short. That's in God's hands, not in our hands. But it's a very promising message of hope. So early in the book of Acts, you get established that Jesus is the Messiah for everyone, not just the Jews. And the gospel is going to have power in places nobody ever thought the gospel could have power. That's true today too. And I'll tell you one that comes home to roost. I know that we think and I'm going to just stir the whole pot here with the miraculous gifts, but don't ask me a question. I'm not going to answer about this. Today, there is the people that we would think are the least likely to ever become Christians. This is just what we tend to think are Muslims, particularly radical Muslims. I mean, we see in the news that radical Islam is enemy of Christianity, and that's true for radical Islam. I don't know if that's true for every Muslim, but it's certainly true for radical Islam. Enemies of Christianity, there is no way the gospel is going to work with those people. But you do hear these intriguing stories of Muslims in unlikely places coming to follow Jesus Christ. And sometimes, not through speaking in tongues or anything, but it seems that in some way God is moving there. Some people have reported, I can't tell you the truth of this, I've just say that there are reported dreams. And it's as though Jesus spoke to me and opened the door, and you see the gospel. I'm only telling you this to say this. The gospel has power in places we don't think it has power. That's the key message, I think, from this part of the book of Acts. Well, we move from this, in other words, the story of Philip, and that story, don't underestimate the powerful things that happen. Peter and John basically lay their hands on it and go, what do you want to do, God? And he says, I'm going to make a point here. Here come miraculous gifts of the Spirit. We're now going to turn and pick back up the story of that young man, Saul, who is really doing his best to kill as many Christians as he can. Let me pause for a second before we go back to Paul and see if you have any questions about Philip or what happened in Samaria.
What was the impact on Ethiopia of Philip's encounter with the eunuch? That's a great question. I mean, it's hard. I mean, there's nothing in the scriptures that are going to tell you that are going to record this. And by the way, this is pretty interesting. I'll try to keep this brief. There are so many people you're going to meet in the book of Acts that you never hear about again. They're clearly doing ministry for the rest of their lives, but they're only highlighted for one little thing. I'm sure they did many wonderful things. That should be encouraging to us too, is there are so many people that have a part to play. This Ethiopian eunuch, according to tradition, goes back and is instrumental. This event kicks off um, a big conversion in Ethiopia. But there's nothing in the scripture. There's no way that he goes away rejoicing that he doesn't go spread the word. By the way, that's one thing you notice. Have you noticed one trait of every Christian here? First of all, they're pretty fearless. I mean, they really believe because they're risking their necks. But the biggest thing is they talk about their faith wherever they go. I'm not saying they used evangelism explosion or they knew the four spiritual laws or, you know, I mean, they weren't trained. They're just going to go tell everybody about this Jesus that I met and look what he did for me. And you know what? You can be reconciled to God too. They weren't trained at all any more than many of us are. They were just exuberant and wanted to talk about their faith. No, no doubt that this eunuch did the same thing. Good question. Speaking of miracles, the Catholic Church has requirements for a person like Mother Teresa to become a saint, and they have to prove that I think two miracles happened. Can you comment on that? That is indeed the case. <laughs> what else do we want to talk about? <laughs> In all seriousness, we are a Protestant church. We don't find any basis in the scripture. For, I mean, I'm trying to be offensive. I'm just going to tell you, I don't find any basis in the scripture for that whole idea. In fact, in the scripture, the word saints is applied to all believers, not a particular person who went through a process who was somehow holier than anybody else. It's not, uh, in my view, it's not a biblical idea. It's certainly not a Protestant idea. But that is indeed the process in the Catholic Church. And I believe uh, Mother Teresa is currently... In, in that process. Was that, that was pretty good, wasn't it? I don't think I offended anybody there, but biblically, that's, that's really difficult to find any kind of basis for that. It sounds like that um, some of the people Jesus healed had mental issues or epilepsy rather than demon possession, and maybe some from the first passage tonight. Was he healing those conditions or was he truly casting out demons? And if so, do we believe today that people around us are possessed by demons? Boy, that's a good question. <laughs> okay, I'll try and think, give you the short answer to that. It's popular today to look back, so let me comment on this, and say they thought they were casting out demons, but they were probably just curing mental illnesses. They just weren't smart enough to know they were mental illnesses. Okay. That part might be true in the sense that they, I'm sure they did not classify all the mental illnesses in their mental health care. Their science wasn't as good as ours. It's a difficult point to make, and really one that's needless to make, simply because if Jesus is the Son of God, he probably knows the difference between schizophrenia and evil spirits. So I'm just going to make this point. Jesus believed there were demons in people. I believe that there indeed were demons in people. The whole Bible talks about a spiritual realm. You're going to see the whole idea of spiritual warfare. There are clearly evil forces, fallen angels, we call them demons, servants of Satan, 
who are at work in this world, the scripture says they are, at least in some cases, at work in people. So the scripture clearly teaches that. So I do not think there's any basis biblically to say that that's what these were. Now, there's, the scripture doesn't always insist that that is the case, and the scripture does not say that that's not the manifestation of it. So let's move to the second question. Are mental illnesses today, or just people who are, appear to exhibit these behaviors today, can people today be inhabited by an evil spirit? Christians, a lot of different points of view, but I'll give you two interesting ones. One is that yes, demons can indeed inhabit people today as they did in that time, that is possible. Christians will disagree as to how much that happens. And that possession manifests itself in a variety of ways. In other words, it could manifest itself as being lame. It could manifest itself as schizophrenia or, you know, what make up whatever you'd like, some mental appearance. Okay, call it schizophrenia if you want to, but that's how that demon manifested itself. So some Christians say, yes, it does happen. And yeah, well, why couldn't it manifest itself in that way? So. Does it matter? Call it schizophrenia, call it a demon. Some of it maybe is mental illness, some of it may be demons. So Christians believe that it is possible. More, what you'll hear of today, Christians believing that it's rampant that evil spirits can not so much inhabit people, not so much possess people, but oppress people. And what I mean by that is, it's not so much that a an evil spirit comes into a person and they just go acting in completely bizarre, uncontrollable ways that you see some examples of, but that evil spirits just want to make you miserable and they might make you anxious or, uh, in other words, they will oppress you. Not necessarily take over yourself, but they're exerting influence on you, trying to give you trials and difficulties and it may be physical manifestation. Does that make sense? So it's not necessarily possession, but it's this exerting power and oppressing you, doing mean things to you, basically, would be the way to say it. So Christians see demon activity today in, in a couple of different ways. I'll conclude that by saying this, is that I'll give you my view on this. I do not see any reason in the scriptures to think that demonic activity, meaning the evil forces of power in the spiritual realms, are, are for some reason not able to do some kind of work today. I understand you can, you can look, that gets kind of detailed, but basically they're clearly, the Bible speaks as though they're evil forces in the world today. I do not, however, find it consistent with the scripture that Christians can be inhabited by demons. I find that, and there are some Christians that believe that, I find that almost incomprehensible for this simple reason. Now, there's more to be said about this. I'm trying to keep this answer short. We just got through talking about when you believed you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 5, God poured his love to us through the Holy Spirit, which he has given us. If we are followers of Jesus Christ, we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. I do not believe, nor does the scripture ever teach, that there's any demon powerful enough to bind up the Holy Spirit of God. So if that's helpful to you, I know that we can't talk about that whole question. Matter of fact, I think I did a whole series on angels and demons. So it's probably out on the web if you wanna go into a lot of detail, but short version so that you don't go home tonight scared of the dark. I just want you to understand, I do not believe that the scripture teaches that Christians are under the power of demons. The Holy Spirit that is in you is far greater than he that is in the world. Remember that passage, he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world? Oh, absolutely, no question. So I would at least put your mind at rest in that, in that way. 
because I do not believe that's possible for Christians. Well, meet Saul. Saul, or Paul, as he will soon be known, meanwhile, see, this is brilliant literary work. He's like, okay, you see what Philip did? That was awesome, wasn't it? See that whole laying on the hands? That's cool. Meanwhile, cut to, this would be, this would be a great Hollywood movie. Cue the dark music, you know, meanwhile, Saul, the evil, you know, villain, was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He even went to the high priest in Jerusalem and said, can you give me some letters to the synagogues in Damascus? Damascus, Syria, a city that was there then and it's still there now, 135 miles away. It takes six or seven days to walk there. Oh, Saul, he's a little overachiever. He says, you give me some letters, I'm going to Damascus because it's a major city. And if I find any Christians there, whether they're men or women, I'll bring them here to Jerusalem as prisoners. We're just going to stamp this thing out. So he's on his way to Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed all around him. He fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The scripture says Saul's next words were, who are you, Lord? I don't think so. I think Saul's next words were, uh-oh. <laughs> and then I suspect he said, who are you, Lord? I don't know that I'm persecuting anyone. Who are you? He said, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Now get up. I want you to go into the city, and I'll tell you what you need to do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they didn't see anybody. Like, what is going on? Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he couldn't see anything. They led him by the hand to Damascus, and for three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. Put yourself in Saul's head. He's starting to reevaluate his life at this point, shall we say. The fact that he's blind, this is brilliant. I just want you to notice this. You notice how we've seen some of the miracles that God has done have been done for a purpose. You know, healing the lame man is, an ex is using a physical healing to talk about spiritual healing. Blindness. He could have done anything he wanted to him. He could have said all of a sudden he was itching like crazy for three days. I mean, he could have done anything. Blindness. Because his physical blindness is a sign of his spiritual blindness. And you're going to see his blindness goes away in a few minutes when he realizes Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So his spiritual sight and his physical sight are being parallel. That's why he's struck blind. Well, he's fasting because he's a good Jew. He's like, God and I need to talk. It's time to fast and it's time to pray. And so he spends three days fasting and praying. Now, here's my favorite part. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. This is not the guy who got killed, obviously, earlier in Acts. And by the way, this is the only time you ever meet this guy. Now, this guy has got a not very good job. Watch what God says to him. And the Lord called to him in a vision. He said, Ananias. Ananias said, actually, the NIV doesn't translate this well. He says the same thing that uh, Abraham said. Here I am, Lord, meaning I'm here. W what do you want me to do? And the Lord said, I want you to go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. That street is still there, by the way. And uh, ask for a man from Tarsus. He's from Tarsus in Cilicia, named Saul. You're going to find he's praying. And that's about all I need to say. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to get his sight back. Ananias goes, okay, just a second. Lord, I have heard about this guy, and I've heard all the harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest everyone who calls on your name, and you want me to go tell him I'm a Christian. You know, this is not making sense to me. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. 
This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name to the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. I want to talk about that in a minute. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me so you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, it's like scales fell from his eyes and he could see again. And he got up and he was baptized. And after eating some food, he regained his strength. Very interesting conversion story. You're going to see it two more times in Acts because Paul told it everywhere he went. He said, I'm going to tell you what happened to me because it's crazy. This is, the, this is the equivalent of today's. If I got up here and told you my conversion story, it wouldn't be very dramatic. And that's okay. Most of us don't have a dramatic story. I, don't, I can't tell you that I was in the depths of, of drug addiction and I was about to die or something happened to me. You know, I just don't have that story. Many of us don't. But some do, and they're pretty powerful, aren't they? I think all our stories are powerful, but some of those are like, oh, wow, that's not normal. That's Saul. He's got one of those powerful stories. You're going to see it. Again, he's going to tell it two more times in Acts, but he's telling it everywhere he goes. Saul is an interesting choice on God's part, and he's going to predominate after the next few weeks because God's got a few other really interesting things to do here. By the way, the church is almost going to split in the next few weeks, but we'll talk about that shortly. He's going to use Saul, this Paul, in a huge way. This is the most unlikely guy. Think about this. God looks at him and he goes, okay, here's this guy Saul. He's really sharp. He's one of the best and brightest of the Jews. He speaks Hebrew. He speaks Greek. He speaks Latin. He not only speaks it, he speaks it well. He is an orator. I'll show you how you can tell this later in the book of Acts. You see some of his speeches. We'll just look at the Greek text together and I'll show you. It's just... Brilliant. I mean, this guy is trained. He has clearly read the Greek philosophers and the Roman philosophers. He's going to quote them in a couple of his letters. This guy is really good. God looks at me and said, this guy is perfect. He's a Roman citizen. He's got rights. I'm going to send him throughout the whole Roman world. He's going to go talk Hebrew to the Jews. He's going to talk Greek to everybody else. And he's going to talk Latin to the Roman authorities. He's a Roman citizen, so they can't just put him in jail. This guy is perfect. Well, except for the fact that he's killing Christians. But other than that, he's perfect. And so that's why God says, this is my chosen instrument. And you guys are kind of like that. I know you don't think of yourselves in an Apostle Paul. You go, well, I'm no Apostle Paul, right? And that's true. We're not in some ways, but we are in some really important ways. Is I want you to think of yourself in that way. I, I really do. I'm not just puffing you up. I want you to think about, because the scriptures say, you say, oh, sure, he chose Paul because he's so... He's got all these capabilities. And of course he chose Abraham. And yeah, he chose Moses, but who am I? The scripture says that he chose you. This is Ephesians. Start reading through the book of Ephesians. You'll be in the best mood of your life when you're through. It says, he chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. That is a powerful thing to say. God chose you. You see this and you go, now that's powerful. He picked Paul. And he did whatever it took to get Paul, uh, draw Paul to him. I don't know about you, but that's my story. He, he did a lot of stuff to draw me to him. He has chosen you because you are uniquely gifted to go be a part of God's story. Look at Ananias. What did Ananias bring to this? As far as I know, Ananias brought only one trait 
to this situation. You don't know anything about him. You know if he's smart. You don't know if he's dumb. You don't know if he's handsome or not. You don't know if he's got a beard or he's not got a beard. You don't know anything about this guy. But you know one thing. He's got a little courage. He is willing to do what God told him to do, even when he's like, I don't know about this. This guy, Paul, is dangerous. But God said go. He did what God told him to do, and he went where God told him to go. That's it. He is uniquely qualified. He does other things in his life. I'm sure he's uniquely qualified. So are you and I. I want you to think about yourself as God said, insert your name here, I have chosen you to go do good things for my name. Think of yourself as being uniquely chosen because that's what the scripture teaches. You are an apostle Paul. You may not be gifted in the way he is. And by the way, for all of his gifts, he is as abrasive as they get. So you're probably gifted in ways that he's not, right? That's, that's what's happening here. Do you want to tell you one other interesting thing about telling him how much he must suffer for my name? Well, if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, and as we get later in Acts, you're going to find out, this guy has a really tough job. I mean, his road is not easy. Oh, it's going to be wildly, quote, successful, meaning the kingdom is going to explode. But he is going to bear a lot of brunt of suffering. Here's what he wrote about it. I want you to listen to this in the book of Philippians. He wrote about several places, but Philippians is a couple of interesting little passages. This is Paul. He's in prison when he writes it. He's already been beaten up, left for dead, shipwrecked a couple times. I mean, Paul's, this is later in his career. He's out there preaching like crazy. I mean, he is going to be faithful to what he believes. But in uh, Philippians 1, 29, he said, It has been granted to us, like it's a gift, that for the sake of Christ, we not only get to believe in him, we also get to suffer for his sake. Isn't that curious? We get to suffer for his sake. Chapter 3, he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of everything. I mean, you think about it. This moment, he's kicked out of school. Gamaliel had not taken him back. The government cut off all of his student loans, you know, because he's no longer a good Jew. I don't know what his family thought of him, but this guy's now a disgrace to the family, right? He's lost everything, a promising career. This guy's going into politics. I mean, Saul is clearly going into politics. He's just being groomed for this. He's lost everything. He says, I count it all for, as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ instead. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I do not mind sharing in his suffering so I can become like him in his death so that I will also become like him in his resurrection. I tell you this because what, what God said there was really kind of funny. I want you, you need to show him what he's going to need to suffer for my name. And Paul turns that around and says, it is a privilege to suffer for your name. Christianity is the only religion that has that view of suffering, that suffering isn't just something to be avoided. Oh, it's not good. Christianity doesn't say, oh, we should all go love suffering. But the point is Christianity says suffering isn't just something to be avoided. It's something that God can use in really powerful ways. Does that make sense? It's the only religion in the world that says suffering is actually necessary for us. Suffering is actually something that God can use to perfect us. Paul understands that. He said, I consider it a privilege to suffer. And God says, when he converts him, he says, I need you to understand exactly what you're going to have to go through for my name. Do you trust me? And Paul says, yes. And sure enough, he's faithful through the rest of his life. There's just a powerful idea about how much you must suffer.
So think about this narrative. This is a fascinating story. Stephen dies. Oh my goodness, things are terrible. 20,000 uh, Christians flee and start preaching everywhere they go. Philip begins to show the power of the gospel is powerful even on the non-Jews, even on a eunuch. It's like, whoa, what is going on? What is God doing here? Meanwhile, Saul's trying to stamp this thing out. But then Saul gets converted. All the Jews hear it. They go, you have got to be kidding me. What is going on here? What is the deal with this gospel? What is the deal with this power? And then the last passage, we'll skip the part about Saul uh, moving on. I want to get you this last thing. And then here's our bookend. It starts with depression. It ends with joy. Look at this. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. The NIV cleans this up. I'm going to give you the literal translation of this. It says, the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria was enjoying peace, living in the fear of the Lord and the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. It was strengthened and it grew. That's an interesting thing to say. They were living in the fear of the Lord. In other words, this God loves me, but I tell you what, he is nothing to be trifled with. Do you see what this God can do? Our God is a mighty God. They were living in the fear of the Lord, encouraged by the Holy Spirit that is living inside every one of them. And they were strengthened, and they began to grow. Now stop and think about this. If you hear this gospel and you know, okay, you can become a Christian, but oh, by the way, if any of the authorities find out, they're going to lock you up and they might kill you because they killed Stephen. Now, would you like to become a Christian? That is not a good evangelism technique. But what's happening? See this? Look what's happening. It starts with what the world says. We're going to stamp this thing out. And in the end, it says, oh, actually, it ended up growing like crazy. That's powerful. And I want to encourage you in that in the world today because sometimes we feel a little like the Stephen thing, like, well... Maybe nobody's been killed in this country yet, but it's starting to get to be a hostile place. I just really want you to be encouraged because the message over and over in the book of Acts is what the world wants to do to stamp out what you believe is going to result in explosive growth. God just turns everything upside down. That's true in our individual lives, and it's true for us as a congregation as well. The biggest threat to the church, this is going to sound crazy to you, the biggest threat to the church is actually not the persecution. Because what's happened? They get persecuted, and they're growing. You kill Stephen, and we're exploding. We just converted more people than you could have ever imagined. It's not the persecution. It turns out the biggest threat to the early church is schism from within. And next week, we're going to battle schism from within. But you don't need to worry about it this week. But next week, we'll have a schism. All right? So... Go explode into this community and just tell people what Jesus has done for you and see what happens. God bless you. I'll see you next week.